Turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked And behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand this holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place, the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are not worthy in the slightest to hear any part of your word, and in particular to hear the divine name that you have revealed. But, Lord, we are indeed very thankful that you have granted it to us. Heavenly Father, how we indeed pray, Lord, that we would rightly understand it. We do not know it. We do not understand it as we should. We do not understand what difference these things make to us in our worship and faith and life. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would change that in us and through your great power enable us to see these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight we carry on in Exodus chapter 3 to the great appearance of God to Moses. 
And having considered the subject of the holiness of God shown in the appearance in the, the fiery the bush that was on fire but not consumed, and then the good news that he first communicated to Moses, which we called the Gospel of Exodus, now we consider what might be the most amazing part of all of this, which is the revelation of the name of God. Now the context for this is Moses' question in verse 13, And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, keep in mind that he had come to the people before as a helper and redeemer, and they rejected him. When he came, remember that that stinging question Who made you a prince or a judge over us? And Moses did not answer that question. Well, he wants to make sure he has a good answer to that question this time when he goes back to them. And we ourselves might ask, who is making this man a prince and a judge, and moreover a prophet and a redeemer over the people of Israel? And children, indeed, if people ask, who is your God and what is his name, what are you going to say? What is the name of your God. You know this word, God, but what, what indeed is his name? Now, the answer is straightforward on the one hand and a little bit complicated on the other. In fact, people have written entire books on the subject of God's name. And there are aspects of, of this that we do not know entirely, and maybe we cannot know in this world. But somehow God expected Moses to understand in basic terms what he was saying, and he did. God expected the people, when Moses then said those same words to the people, he expected the people to grasp it in basic terms, and they did. And so even though we do not come to the absolute bottom of these things and all the mysteries, whether linguistically or in deeper ways, we know that we can understand these basic things. God has revealed his name. He wants us to know it. And we should. So let us consider this great topic of God's name. That's the, that's the title of the sermon, God's name. With these three points. First, I am. Second, the Lord. Third, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the first point in God's name is I am. In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. These words, these little words in Hebrew, eye, asher, eye. The exact same verb, I am, no difference at all, repeated with this relative particle, asher, in between, I am who or I am that, I am. And at first blush, we'd be forgiven for thinking that this says absolutely nothing at all. I am who I am. What does that, what does that distinguish? That doesn't sound like a, a name. We would wish it would be some sort of long and complicated name that is, is very distinct. Because we're used to those kinds of names. We're used to names as if they were passwords. You know, having to find, you type in a password, and if you type in this much, it says it's not good enough. You have to keep in typing characters until it's long enough to distinguish from all the other passwords in the world. Well, we have to distinguish ourselves from all the other seven billion people in this world, and what is more, they're the ones that came before them. 
And so we have that sort of name. And it's based on trivial distinctions that my name starts with a W instead of a, a V or a T or an R. But let me say, that's because there isn't much to distinguish creatures from one another. There's nothing at a more basic level to distinguish ourselves. It's only by this combination of characters that we come up with any distinguishing. At the very, very most in this world, we might have this sort of name that is attached to royalty and to high nobility that would have uh, you know, a name of this county or a name of this district. But even there, what is it saying? It's just a reminder that, that all of us, were from down here. We're of this, this world here. And we're all of this common lot of creatures of the dust and of the earth. But this name, this name is of a t- another matter altogether. Because what distinguishes God is not some long password, but the fact that he exists. Right? Immediately, that's what sets him apart from all the false gods who do not exist. There are many gods out there, but there's only one who actually exists, and that's the Lord God. But far, far more so than he could have stopped by just saying, I am. But he says, I am who I am, reminding you that this being speaking, he is possessed of his own existence. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But do you understand that each and every one of us, we are absolutely dependent upon God for our existence? We, don't, we were created by him, and moment by moment, what does it say? He upholds us by the word of his power. You understand that this whole universe, it, moment by moment, it is being upheld by the word of God's power. And so theoretically, were God to stop upholding it, it would crumble. It would not merely crumble, it would cease to exist. Why? Because the world doesn't uphold itself. That's what the world thinks. Right? Atheists think that somehow the world made itself and the world upholds itself. That's what godless people think. But God's people know what he has said. That he created the world by the word of his power and he upholds it by the word of his power moment by moment. And you are not possessed of your own existence. It is not something that where God suddenly somehow theoretically to cease to exist you would go on as a self-existing one. Not at all. Your existence is utterly dependent, utterly contingent upon the living God. And this is what sets him apart. So ultimately, this is the ultimate distinguisher. Not some long list of of letters to distinguish himself from other names like a password. He is an, an entirely different ontological category from anyone and anything else. There is no one else in that category. He is in a set of one, the one self-existent one. There's no one else who could possibly say, I am who I am, only God. And that is, of course, the significance of all the I am statements in the Gospel of John. We've mentioned this most remarkable passage, we read it in John chapter 8, and I'll direct your attention to John chapter 8, verses 23 to 28. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am Now, I know most of us have a little word, he, after that, but it's absolutely not part of it. It would not have been part of what he had actually said. The whole significance derives from the fact that there's nothing else but those words, I am. 
You, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And they said to him, who are you? There's the question again. He says, if you don't believe that I am, they missed it. And he says, okay. You ask me again, who, who am I? Okay, well, let me explain. He goes on, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. You haven't got it. In verse 28, then Jesus, in desperation, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. You know, then going on, then he says at the very end of all that, before Abraham was, I am. He is saying that he is God. And those people know it. And that's why they picked up the stones, you see. Because they understood the, the significance of him taking on the divine name. He claimed to be God. And he was. Well, that's the idea of I am. He, he is the I am who I am. But secondly, he is the Lord. Because in some sense, that is not his proper name, but something related to it in verse 15. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And there we have the proper name of God, the Lord. Now, the, these, as you probably know, these four letters in English are also four letters in Hebrew, Yod, He, Vav, and He. And no one now living knows exactly how this is pronounced. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You, they don't know. And that's because the scribes, uh, you understand that the text of, of the Old Testament didn't originally have vowel pointing on them. It was without that. And the scribes would never pronounce the name of God lest they break the second commandment. Now, I'm, I have mixed feelings about this because you, in some sense there is a sympathy for that. We wouldn't want to misuse the divine name. But on the other hand, it's sort of like the things that the scribes and Pharisees often did, which was to create additional boundaries around things that God hadn't done. And, and God himself doesn't, doesn't reveal this name and say, never use it again. So I, I, have, I have mixed feelings about that. But what I can tell you for absolute certain is we don't really know exactly how to pronounce it. Because as I said, they never pronounced it, and so they use substitutes. Usually they use the generic word for, for, the, for Lord Adonai, or they use the generic word for God, Elohim. And they use the vowel points to go along with it. So they had the consonants of the name of God, and underneath it, they pointed it as if they were saying Adonai instead of the divine name, Lord. So they, they, uh, in the old days, now people didn't know that. You, again, some of you probably know the word Jehovah, and as appears in some of our hymns. Well, Jehovah is an attempt to actually pronounce it the way it's written before they understood that these were the, the scribes were actually telling them to pronounce it in some way that wasn't originally written. And so we don't do that anymore. Now the, the academics normally say Yahweh, which is a possibility, but it's absolutely nothing more than a possibility. We simply don't know. Anyhow, the name itself is very closely connected with what was revealed in the previous verse. That's very clear. It's some derivation of this root, this verb to be, 
right? I am who I am. Those root letters are, this is his, his name. He is the living God, the self-existing God, the creator God. That is his identity, and it becomes, therefore, his proper name. And moreover, it is the covenant name of God. You know, the world knows there is a God. That much is revealed in creation. That much is revealed in their own hearts. God has made it known to them. But they do not know his, his name. That's a matter for special revelation. That's given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's given in Scripture. And this name that we have is a covenant name for God's covenant people. You know, Exodus 6, we're, we're going to go on to read that. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. Now, of course, in retrospect, the Lord all throughout the Pentateuch uh, refers to himself as the Lord. And Moses, of, of course, knowing these things, writes. But what he is saying is, I, have, I'm, can, I am now giving more additional information, something even more deeply personal about myself as I reveal this covenant name. And I don't reveal it to everyone. And you have the situation there of he, they alone, the Lord God, the living God, the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses, the servant of the, the people of God, and revealing this covenant name. And he says, this is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. Now, let me just say that this memorial, this name, it is absolutely related to the name Joshua. And also, particularly to Jesus, Yeshua, related to this name. And in particular, it's the idea of Yahweh or Jehovah or however the name is pronounced, saves. That's the relationship. The divine name is the one who saves. And that then brings us to Proverbs 30, verse 4. Do you remember the question in Proverbs 30, verse 4? It says this, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the winds, the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name if you know? Well, now we know. We know the name of the living God revealed to us, the Lord, however indeed it is pronounced. And we know the name of Jesus Christ, his son. And we praise God for these things. Well, he is the I am. He is moreover the Lord. And thirdly, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 15, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. And I think that this is the most amazing information, perhaps, of all. I mean, it's more than enough amazing to know the the proper name of the Lord God. That's wonderful. But as he goes on to say it, as I and, and what we said, he doesn't need to distinguish his name like we have to distinguish among the other seven billion of us in similar situation. He having a more radical and basic name than that. But yet he does go on to take a proper name to himself, not his own, but that of his people. The names, in fact, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He is God. He is the living, self-existent Lord. But he is God of a certain man and of his family. He's a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when, in essence, he's asked, Who are you, Lord? What is your name? What is your identity? How shall I identify you? You say, he says, I'm Abraham's God. That's who I am. Now that, that is an amazing condescension. Keep in mind that these men that he has just taken on his divine tongue, the angel of the Lord, these are sinners. Have you read the story of Jacob in Genesis? Do you know about this, this, this trickster? He's not all that great. Abraham himself, not all that great. We were just reading about him not so long ago. We're, 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 we give thanks to God for what was revealed to him and the promises given to him and his reception and faith of these things. But immediately he then turns around with some act of, of unbelief and of weakness. But yet God in his goodness and his mercy takes these names as part of his own name. Because this is part of his name. You understand, yes, there's this one core name, these four letters, Lord, that is his proper name. But he adds to it, this, this, all these verses, it, it, that is his compound name, as it were, his greater name. And he has forever, specifically when he says that this is forever a memorial in all generations. Part of that memorial, if you're saying, what's going to be in that memorial? Not just those four letters, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this reminds you again of the beauty and the wonder of redemption of sinners. That this God, as part of his character, his revealed character to us, is a redeemer God who takes pity on his own covenant people and owns them, though they be sinners just as bad as, as you and I. And what good news that is. Now, of course, this answered the question that Moses initially asked entirely. Which God? In the context of all these various gods in Egypt, remember they had been there 400 years. There's this God and the other God and so forth. All these different gods. You can go to the, the British Museum and see some of them. I must admit, I, sometimes it's wonderful to be at such a place and all these ancient things. But you go to certain parts of the exhibit with all these demonic creatures of the ancient world, they're gods made in the likeness of demons, and it's not comfortable always to be there. But in the, in the midst of all of those, those false gods, he says, no, the one living God is the one. And in fact, you know him. He's the God of your own fathers. He's the God of your family, your family God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one who has sent me. The Lord God of your fathers. And don't ever forget that these suffering people therefore had a claim upon God in terms of the covenant that no other people did. For all we know, there might have been another slave people in Egypt. The ancient world was full of slaves. And the Egyptians, of course, as the world's most powerful uh, nation, no doubt had other slaves beside the Hebrews. But if they did... We don't know for sure. But if they did, they had no claim upon this living God because he was the Lord God of your fathers. And we praise him for it. Now, in application, we say, as we've learned the name of God and we have barely begun, barely begun, 
And we think then now of a couple of implications of what differences ought to make for us. And again, we're going to barely begin. But let me just say that we have a name now to call upon. And I say call upon this name. Way, way, way back in Genesis. Genesis 4, 26, right after the fall. The fall is in chapter 3. What happens in chapter 4 towards the end of it? And as for Seth, to him also was a son born, and he named him Enoch. And thus men began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to call on his name. And what the way that he had revealed himself to him, they began to call. And whatever, to whatever extent they knew him, they began to call upon him. There was a handle to grab a hold of. And brothers and sisters, beloved, this is the handle by which we grab hold of God by his name. And I say call upon his name. Acts chapter 4 verse 10. Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." There is a significance and an importance to the name of God. He he reveals it. If you do not know God's name, and if you do not know the the name of his son, you have no life. You must know this name. And you must believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Call upon his name. There's no other name. And secondly, of course, we, we worship this God. That's that's the thing. Moses, as soon as he was there, he's on his face. She's worshiping the God as more information is reaching him moment by moment than he can really take in, no doubt visually as as well as, as verbally. But as these things have been revealed to us, we should worship this God. God has made, in the most basic sense, God has made himself known to us in order that we might worship intelligently. We are not like the Athenians who worship a unknown God. That's, that's a pagan religion. That's not us. That's not for God's people. He reveals himself to us more and more. He doesn't hide himself. Yes, there are some things that he's not revealed. He re- reserves to himself some aspects of it. But actually, in the, on the main, he reveals himself, his name, and his attributes in order that we might worship intelligently. And this name, you see, it tells us something about God. I'm so thankful for Nathan's series of studies with the young people. Young people, I hope you've benefited from the the studies having to do with the names and titles of God because each one of them reveals something about this God that we should know, this God that we should adore, this God that uh, that we should grab a hold of in prayer by using these names and titles as each situation demands. Very, very useful. But this is his most basic name. In a world full of lies and of vain idols and of gods that don't exist, we worship the one who is defined by his existence, defined by his reality. We need never wonder if he is there. It's part of his basic identity that he alone exists definitely and finally and of his own essence. So in this changing world, we have a great I am as our God, as creatures of the dust. We worship the eternal God who is the creator of all things. And that, my friends, is the essence of worship. 
right there. Did you, did you see? We have come to the boundary line between creature and creator. This creator-creature distinction that is all important, what is fundamentally God and what is not God, and we have run up to it. And this, friends, is something that you will never be. I am who I am. You will never be that. You will never be I am the self-existent one. He can give you eternal life. He promises to give all those who believe eternal life. But you'll never be the self-existent one. He is utterly distinct from us, and we worship him in this, the very fact that he is so distinct. That's why it's so misguided. I mentioned this to the students on Saturday. So misguided to want to bring down the way we worship God to some trivial and and popular entertainment model level. It is so misguided because you'll never worship God that way. It is precisely in how he is so fundamentally different from us that we worship him does not reveal himself to be one just like you. In your casualness and in your creatureliness and your finitude and your lack of holiness. No, he reveals himself to be utterly different. Yes, condescends to be among us. Amazing. But one as in himself is utterly, utterly different in a category by himself in a group of one. And we worship this God. And thirdly and finally, we think of the Lord's Supper. You know, the sacraments are about the name of God. I don't know if you've, you've thought about it. Primarily, of course, there is baptism, which is in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that is the thing that distinguishes Christian baptism. You can take a bath, you can take a shower, you can go in the rain, but those things do not baptize you. But... Being baptized by a a man authorized by the church in in which the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, well, that makes it, and it's intended to be baptism, that makes it baptism. But let me say, so even though it is primarily in baptism, it is not absent from the Lord's Supper. Where is the name of the Lord in the Lord's Supper? Well, first of all, tell me again whose supper it is. It's the Lord's Supper. Right? And in the New Testament, that's the way this divine name is translated, the Lord. And it is the Lord's Supper. And I would, beyond that, verse 23, I received from the Lord with that which I also, this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. It is part of the very character, the words of institution that are proclaimed everywhere around the world. When we come to take the Lord's Supper, it, these things are part of it, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also in verse 26 is not merely a passive reception of that name, but a proclamation of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim random person's death till he comes. No, the Lord's death till he comes. And so written as if by words on this is the Lord. Everything about it. The Lord's supper. The Lord's death that you're proclaiming. It is the Lord Jesus who instituted. All these things are reception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all these things we receive upon us and we actively proclaim the name of the living God. Indeed. And that's why, by the way, 
Therefore, whoever eats his bread or drinks his cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Why? Because indeed, as well as in tongue, indeed, you are taking this name upon you in the elements while in your heart and your mind you reject him and reject his word. And those things, do not, those things cannot possibly cohere. This is for those who, with their heart and with their mind and with their lips, confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They profess to be believers. And then also then, they receive and actively proclaim the name that is on this sacrament. Well, let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have given us your name. You've not withheld it from us, but you have graciously granted it to us. Lord, how we pray that we would understand it more. And how we pray, Lord, that we would never misuse it or any part of it, anything that refers to you whatsoever. But Lord, we pray also that we would understand what difference these things make to us, that we would benefit spiritually from them. Lord, we recognize that we do not worship you as we ought. And you have particularly revealed yourself to us that we might worship. You have given us a name that we might call upon it. And we pray that we would. Oh, how we pray, Lord, that all who have not yet called upon the name of the Lord would do so. And, Lord, that we would worship you not as if you were such a one as ourselves, a God in our own image or a God in the image of demons. But, Lord, you are the self-existent, eternal creator. We worship you in these things. Lord, how we pray indeed your blessing upon our reception, administration and reception of the Lord's Supper as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.